Rabbi Yosef Kapach tells us about growing up, how they used to learn the Rambam. Kasher bialdutenu, in our youth, lamanu sefer ayad hachazaka lifnei sabizatan. When we used to learn the yad hachazaka, the Mishneh Torah, why is it called yad hachazaka, the strong hand? Why is the book Mishneh Torah called the strong hand, yad hachazaka? So pure, right? Yad, what is yad in Hebrew? Hand. What does Yad mean in Gematria? Yud is 10. Dalit is 4. 10 plus 4 is? 14. There are 14 books in the Mishnah Torah. Yad HaChazakad, the 14 strong books. When we used to study the Yad HaChazakad in front of my grandfather, that's Rabbi Yichye Kapach. Remember Rabbi Yichye? Rabbi David and Rabbi Yosef. This is the grandson we were most of the people in the shiur of my grandfather had printed versions of the Rambam. Tfus, a print. Ish, ish, utfuso. Every person in their own print. You know, printed books in Yemen was not an easy thing. It was very hard to get printed books. My grandfather's synagogue, until today, has in it a library of books. I remember seeing a Tanakh there from 1850. Oh, wow. Not that it's so old, but the reason it was around, I mean... One book, you mentioned where were the printing presses in Europe. You had uh, in Livorno in Italy, that's where many Sephardic books came from. You had also in Vilna, you had uh, other random printing presses in different places. That for those books to get all the way to Yemen was a, was a big journey. You have to remember, bookstores, you're dealing with people, the Jews were literate, but everybody else... So you're dealing with a world where the Jews had books, but they were scarce. They were hard to come by. My grandfather used to write inside of his books. Bechizkat Halevi Chaim. In the possession of Chaim Halevi. but Halevi Chaim. Then he would write, Hakore bo yismach. Whoever reads in this book should be happy. Vehagonvo yimach. And whoever steals this book should be obliterated and destroyed. And then it had an acronym in the bottom. Bet Aleph. Bishchut, Avraham ben Terach. That's what it would say in the Bible. In the merit of Avraham, the son of Terach. Meaning, he's blessing or cursing the person who reads or steals the book in Avraham. I one did a research and it turned out that it wasn't the only one. That seems to have been a minhag. Why would you curse somebody for taking your book? Because it wasn't a $30 book you got in the bookstore. Books were very valuable. It's for this reason it's famous. The Jews of Yemen would sit around a table they would study, let's say, a Gemara, they would study Mishnah, whatever it was. And they would take rotations. One person sits in front of the book, one person sits here, one here, one in front. One, and they would rotate, and so, so you could share the book. And people would learn how to just read upside down. You just get so used to reading upside down, you read upside down. There you go. That's exactly right. When, when printed books are hard to come by, they're hard to come by. So you have here, you have here, Nonetheless, the Rambams they used were mostly printed Rambams. And in front of my grandfather, and from a few individuals among those who were listening, they had handwritten manuscripts that were a few hundred years old. So imagine here in Purim, you have Megillat Esther. I read from a Megillah. A few of you have your own Megillot. Most of you are reading from a printed version. 
Some of you use the synagogue's printed version. Some of you bring your own favorite printed chumash from home. Everybody brings their own migratis now. Some have handwritten, some have books. Most people have books and everyone brings the one they like. But my grandfather, he says, had the manuscripts and a few other people in the, in, in the shiul. Sefer, sefer, vigilon. Every book in its age, meaning they're different. You know, someone has a 100-year-old book, one has a 10-year-old book, one has a 200-year-old and almost every time that we would study, there was a problem with the nosach, with the text of the book. Somebody, oh, my book says this, and your book says that, and they would begin to argue. There were some that didn't make a difference. They were so minuscule that you just kind of skipped over them. Sometimes the, the variants in text were so big that they made people literally fight each other in the shiul. What is the correct reading? Because the reading, the text that you have, is directly going to impact the halakha you're walking away with. Sometimes the halakha sometimes the messianic laws, meaning the laws of the future. They're not relevant. They're not... Okay, you know, we're going to argue about how a sacrifice or how a bit of mikdash, uh, but really it's not relevant for right now, but we fight about it anyways because it was important. And there were some halachot that had to do with Shabbat, it had to do with kasher, it had to do, uh, you know, you would fight with these, about these things because they're relevant to right now. These wars, these arguments didn't stop. And every day these wars would awaken again and continue. The deficiency and the poorness of the printed texts were famous for everybody. So much so that in Yemen, when you wanted to call somebody who was a little, uh, you know, a little messed up, not a, you, would, you would use the, ner- the name, a printed book for him. Because there's so many mistakes in printed books. You want to say about a person whose whose thoughts are off, or ideology is wrong, or there's some mistake about them. That if somebody would speak up and they would say something that sounded crazy or preposterous or just not logical. They would say, you printed book, you. That's not the truth, this is the truth. Meaning, the printed books had such a bad reputation in Yemen because of their lack of uh, uh, of correctness, they were they were simply f- riddled with flaws. Better not to lack of. There was a word on the tip of my tongue. Accuracy. Accuracy. Thank you. These things were engraved in my heart. and I was raised with an assumption or the the. Intuition, there are two kinds of Rambams in the world. Rambam Teman, the Rambam of the handwritten manuscripts in Yemen, the Rambam Shetfusim, and the Rambam of the printing houses. Two different Rambams, they're two different books. As I Analyzed more and strengthened this over time. I became aware that I came to realize that there are many differences between the handwritten manuscripts of Yemen and the rest of the manuscripts. 
אלא שיש צמצום מה עם ההשוואה לדפוסים העתיקים, כגון דפוס רומי וכדומה. זה ביושר נו, there are older printer, uh, printed editions, like the ones from Rome, that are older, they have less mistakes, or, or different mistakes. You know, the Rambam that you have now, the one, not this in front of you, the regular printed, printed Rambam, doesn't make a difference which edition you're buying. Almost all of them are photocopies of the same Rambam that was printed in Vilna. So it might have one cover or a different cover or another person's name on it, but it's the same photocopy. And so, you know, before this batch of photocopies, there was another batch of photocopies and there was another. You may find older variants of, of printed Rambams that are better, but they're still not the same as the handwritten manuscripts in Yemen. We have a tradition in our hands from our fathers. And my grandfather wrote about this in one of his letters. That still in the lifetime of the Rambam. Lavlar is, is an interesting word. Today you'd probably use it to mean like a secretary. But let's not use it in that context. I'm going to go out on a limb and throw out a, a different word. They would send messengers, like, like notaries, imagine. People who were good at writing and could copy things. And I don't know what term you would call that. I'm going to call them scribes. scribes. You want to use the word? They would send them from Yemen to Egypt. So from Yemen to Egypt, they would send these people to go and copy the writings of the Rambam from his own handwriting. And every once in a while, the Jews of Yemen would send another scribe to go back to Egypt, to go to the Rambam, and get his updated versions and the, mistake, the corrections that he made or the change of opinion that he made. They would record that, and they would come back. Until literally the last of the Rambam's manuscripts were brought over to Yemen that way. I don't know his name. Oh, okay, so he... So it also has uh, already been proven and is famous, thank you, Zef, for from the writings of this professor. And also from my own writings, says Rav Kapach. That it wasn't, that the, the road between Yemen and Mizraim were not uh, abandoned. Yes? And there was a constant flow of traffic. In both directions, Yemen, Egypt, Yemen, Egypt, Yemen, Egypt. This was a famous uh, road that was traveled. But this is not the right place to talk to you about the geography and the travels of uh, the people between Yemen and Egypt. But you should know that was a common journey that was traveled. But we're not just relying on some oral tradition when we tell you this. But we have a proof. But there's actual real evidence showing that this is correct that you can rely on. In the commentary on the Mishnah, I mean the Rambam's commentary on the Mishnah, I already showed you in my Mahadura, in my printing. That all the additions and the, the corrections and the changing of text that the Rambam made in his own writings, you find them in the Yemenite writings as well. And you find that the ones that were not updated were the ones that were printed in the printing presses. 
ועל כמה מן החזרות בספר היד עצמו עמדתי בהקדמתי לספר המצוות מהדורתי האחרונה. And a number of these corrections, I edited already in my own printing, says Rav Kapach, אשר נתפס עם המקור הערבי על ידי מוסד הרב קוק, which was printed with the Arabic original through the printing house of הרב קוק. So, מוסד הרב קוק is a famous printing press, they print a lot of Jewish books. <coughs> I have some of Rav Kapach's older books in which you have Judeo-Arabic on one side of the column, and then his translation into Hebrew on the other side of the column. It seems the later editions or the newer editions of the books already took out the Arabic, and they just have the Hebrew there. My assumption is that they figure, why waste the paper? Nobody's reading the Arabic anyways. Uh, eventually, we'll get back to this kind of situation where, well, they lost the original Arabic. Now they only have the translated Hebrew, and the, this has happened to us in our history before. But it's very interesting to compare the Hebrew on one side to the Arabic on the other. How do you read the Arabic on the other side? What's special about Judeo-Arabic? Same direction. But you don't know how to read Arabic. But it's like the letters are in such... The letters are in Hebrew. Yeah. They're Hebrew letters. You know, we have at home a book. I was once at a famous bookstore in New York, and I was a used bookstore. I was walking out, and I saw Dr. Seuss' Cat in the Hat, but in Yiddish. Now, what do I know about Yiddish? I just thought it would be funny. I never saw Dr. Seuss' book in Yiddish. So I brought it home. And one day I come home and my father is sitting on the couch with my son Elchanan and he's reading him a bedtime story. And Elchanan insisted he wants this book because he knows Saba only reads Hebrew books. So he chose this Hebrew book and Saba says, it's not Hebrew. It is Hebrew, look, it's Hebrew letters. And Elchanan knows the difference Hebrew and Yiddish. So you see my dad is there busy reading the whole book in absolute gibberish. <laughs> because he can read all the letters and it's mispronounced terribly. But I guess that's cat in the hat in a Sephardic rendition of a Yiddish uh, Hebrew. And that was what we read for bedtime that night. The cats did tayats. That one. Ulmana kitsu, the cat in the hat. Ulmana kitsu, lo echzor al dvarim kan, and in order to be brief, says Rav Kapach, I won't repeat these things here. Val kulan ha'iroti b'mkomotam b'chatzrahem uv'tirotam. And in every place, I made a point to tell you when there was a change or when there's a difference in text. And you'll see that Rav Kapach will do this a lot. In the text, we'll have one thing, and he'll write in his footnotes, this word does not appear in the handwritten manuscripts of the Mishneh Torah. Or, this sentence does appear in the Mishneh Torah of the print. Or, and he'll tell you, he'll tell you when you should know. In fact, one of the main things we're going to notice when we read Rav Kapach's Mishneh Torah is that the numbering system in the manuscripts of Yemen does not match the numbering system in the Rambam's actual manuscripts. So, Rambam chapter 2, Halakha 31, in the Yemenite manuscript, might be chapter 2, number 29. And so he's going to have an interesting time maintaining which number are we up to when you end up quoting the Rambam. So you don't want to misquote the Rambam. Sometimes you see someone quoted the Rambam, it's the wrong place. It's not the wrong place. It's just a different breakup of the Halakhot. And he's going to make his best effort as much as possible to let us know when such things happen. Tomorrow, B'zad Hashem, We have some time, why not? Let's do a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, let's do a little more. You, but it's in the middle of a paragraph, so we're going to stop in the middle of a paragraph. Yehudet Teman, the Jews of Yemen, Chachmehem v'yichidehem shamranimhem. Their scholars, their leaders, the, the special ones among them, are shamranim, are very traditional, very conservative is the word. From the root of lishmo, to protect. 
מעולם לא העיזו לשלוח יד לתקן ולהגיע בשום ספר שהגיע לידיהם. They never had the audacity to לתקן, to fix, or להגיע, to edit any of the books that came to them. ובוודאי לא בספרי רבנו, and especially not in the books of the Rambam, שהיה נערץ עליהם ונתעלה ביניהם כפי שהוא באמת. Because he was considered very precious and very admired by the Rambam as he really is. וכפי עדות הרמב"ן, and like the testimony of the Rambam, רבי משה בן נחמן, שהיו אומרים בקדיש, the Rambam says that the Yemenite Jews used to say in their קדיש, בחייכון וביומכון, in our life, in your life, ובחיי מרנה ורבנה משה בן מימון, in the life of our master and our teacher, משה the son of מימון. Meaning when they would say in Kaddish, this is the Ramban records, whether or not it happened, I don't know to tell you, I wasn't there. The Ramban, you're talking about a long time ago, records the Jews of Yemen were so close to the Ramban, that in the Kaddish would say, in our life, in your life, they would say, in our life, in your life, in the life of our Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe, the son of Maimon. They definitely didn't go around editing his books. But you know, I'll talk about it in a minute. וכינויי כבוד שונים מכנים את הרמב״ם חכמי תימן הקדמונים. There are many titles that were given to the Rambam in the early writings of the rabbis of Yemen. כגון מאור האפלה, the light among the darkness. מאיר אפלתלו. מרדכי הזמן, מרדכי of our times. ועוד כדי שרבי עמרם בן שלמה על כפיי. But the Yemenite last names when they're written in Arabic, I don't actually know how to pronounce them properly, I'm not going to lie to you. אז רבי עמרם, דסנו שלמה, חי במאה השנייה לאלף השישי. בספרו, באור התקבצו חכמים. In his book, קורא על הרמב״ם, he calls the Rambam את המקרא. He says about the Rambam, הנה אנוכי שולח לכם את אליה הנביא. That when the Prophet says, I'm sending you Eliyahu the Prophet, He's referring to the Rambam. ולדבריו, and according to him, כי אליהו והרמב״ם, that both אליהו and the Rambam, הודיעו בעולם כי אדוני הוא אלוהים. Both of them came to the world to share the same message, that Hashem is God. Is the Rambam the Mashiach? No. Is אליהו הנביא Mashiach? No. Right now there's a Midrash, Midrash, I categorize it, a teaching of the Chachamim, in a book called Tanah de Veliyahu. It says, Bizman Shemelech HaMashiach Ba. There's a song that they made into this, but that song is not accurate with all the words. No, so I'm not, I remember, it says a few teachings like this. Bishah Shemelech HaMashiach Ba, the time that Bimelech HaMashiach comes. Eliyahu Navi Omed al-Gag Bet HaMikdash. Eliyahu Navi will stand on the roof of the Bet HaMikdash and they'll call out to the Jewish people, Anavim, humble ones, Higiyah Azman Gulatchem, the time of your redemption has come. It's a pasuk. So what does it tell you? That before Mashiach comes, Eliyahu Navi will call out to the Jewish people. Where will he be standing? On the roof of the Bet HaMikdash. He'll be standing on the roof of the Bet HaMikdash. The Mashiach didn't come yet. What does it tell you about the Bet HaMikdash in correlation with the Mashiach? Yes. That at least according to our Chachamim, 
or some of our Chachamim. You could argue there are others who disagree. I'm willing to accept that. That the Bet HaMikdash has to be built first, and then the Mashiach will come. Don't be so scared. It's easier to believe that everything is going to fall out of the sky, that some great fireworks are going to happen, and eagles are going to take us to Jerusalem. It's easy to believe in a magic carpet. There are people who believe in unicorns also. A person, though, at a certain point says, what do our Chachamim really require from us? What do they really believe in? Are there Chachamim that believe the Bet HaMikdash will fall out of the sky? Absolutely. I gave a shiur once on Tisha B'Av. I can't take away. There are Chachamim who believe it for sure. Ashkenazi Chachamim? Yes. Sephardic Chachamim? Yes. But it's not, it's not the approach of all of our Chachamim. And at the rate that we're going today, I don't think it's so far-fetched. I think it's far-fetched to think <laughs> the Jews will want to build a Bet HaMikdash. But in the way that our redemption has been unfolding, I don't think it's so unusual to say that some of the things that other people thought would fall out of the sky, Am Israel went ahead and did it on their own. It shouldn't, shouldn't scare you so much just to realize that's what's been unfolding and it perhaps will continue to unfold that way. But I got completely off topic. And therefore, Eliyahu and Avin Naramam share a common quality in that both of them came to the world and shared this idea of Adonai Hu Elohim. Hashem is our God. By the way, you could say that pasuk as many times a day as you want. You want to walk down the street a hundred times. Adonai Hu Elohim. Adonai Hu Elohim. Hashem is God. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, He is the only God. Say it. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Always repeat Pesukim of Emunah. Haraperetz, when I used to walk with him, sometimes he'd be mumbling under his breath. Ha, what are you saying? He'd say that he would say the psukim when he's walking. As to say to pray. Don't people are afraid to have a, a Hashem name phobia? They're afraid to say the name of Kosh If from the loudspeakers they could say Allahu Akbar, we can't say Adonai Hu Elohim on a loudspeaker. We always say this, and unfortunately because I teach in English, I have to sometimes fall into this trap also. Hashem, 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 all day Hashem, Hashem. What does Hashem mean? The name. Hashem Shani Yonatan. My name is Yonatan. That's how you say that in Hebrew? Why say Hashem? Why resort to the only nickname of HaKadosh Baruch that doesn't mean anything? All of my chavutot, all of the Talmudim of Peres that really learned from him, all those who never learned from him but really belong to the same camp, in particular, when we speak between each other, Habore, the Creator, Habore Barach, the Creator, blessed be He, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, those who are Kabbalistic, Kuch Habrichu, HaRachaman, they mean something, the blessed, the Holy One, blessed be He, the Creator of the world, Use names that mean something. Why say Hashem? What's the purpose of saying Hashem? It's like we're using the nickname that doesn't mean anything. To tell a person, you know, if the Creator wants it, will happen. Tell a person, don't be afraid on the street to tell them you believe in a Creator. We say God willing. When you say God and they think God, they're not thinking about the same God you're thinking about. There are people here in the shoe. I don't want to say their name because I'm on camera. But I'm saying it to praise them. When they, before they read Hebrew in the Berkneset, they used to read in Spanish. And they refused to say the word of Hashem's name in Spanish. 
People say always, you hear people, Dios, the name of God. But to a Jewish person, that might mean a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But to somebody who's not Jewish, that doesn't mean a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And to refuse to say it, they say, Adonai, my master, a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Don't be afraid. Adonai Hu Elohim. The Rambam came to the world to teach people that Hashem is God. Like Eliyahu Navi. Where does Eliyahu Navi say this pasuk? What's the story behind this pasuk? Remember Tanakh a little bit. That was when they were burning the uh, <coughs> in front of the false idols. They were making Very offerings. Good. They were the they false the prophets the of Baal. Remember this story? Yeah? Prophets of Baal. Some people here, they haven't been hanged to read this story on Motei Shabbat. Uh, the prophets of Baal, they come to Hala Carmel, to Mount Carmel in Haifa. No, not everything happened in Jerusalem. All of Eretz Israel is holy. And Hala Carmel, there was a showdown between the Yaman Avi and the prophets of Baal. And they said, whoever is going to get their God to light the fire and, the, and burn the, the sacrifice there, that's going to be the real God. And the prophets of Baal are screaming and they're crying and they're praying and they're doing all kinds of crazy things. And Eliyahu Navi is having a field day with it. Maybe he's sleeping. Cry a little bit louder. Maybe he's fell asleep. You know, maybe scream a little bit. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, busy. And, uh, <laughs> and then it comes his turn. All the things. Do you know the story? It's all... Eliyahu Navi is going out of his way to, 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 it's a turning point in Jewish history. Put water on the wood. Put, make, make it the work. Give me the least advantage possible. And he prays, which tefillah does he pray? Tefillah Mincha. He prays the Mincha prayer, which is why many Chachamim say Mincha is the prayer that answers. It's the one that everybody else uh, says fast. That's a very special prayer. And the one of you was answered there. He prays and everything goes up in fire. And the Yawan who had challenged the prophets of Baal by telling them, listen, how long are you going to play games with the Kaddish Baruch Hu? If, if the Kaddish Baruch Hu is God, follow him. If Baal is, follow him. How long will you uh, try to balance this tightrope between idol worshipping and believing in Hashem? And at that moment when the prophets saw what happened, they fall on their face, I think maybe 400 prophets of Baal. And they call out, Adonai Hu Elohim, Adonai Hu Elohim, Hashem is God, Hashem is God. It's not for nothing that we're invoking Eliyahu Navi. Hari, who did the Rambam come to scream at? Who is he speaking to? If you remember our Kuzari classes, the Kuzari is coming to speak to a non-Jewish king and to convince him to believe in Akash Bachu. The Rambam didn't come to speak to the non-Jewish king. The Rambam is writing his Morein Vuchim for who? For Jews who are perplexed. He comes to write his Halachot for Jews who are confused. They're slightly worshipping idols while trying to believe in Hashem at the same time. And it's for them that the Rambam comes and says, Adonai Hu Elohim, to the false prophets of whatever ideology in Judaism is not actually Judaism. That's the reason why the Rambam and Eliyahu Hanavi are comparable. They're preaching to the same people in different periods in history. But you think these are small people? These are clearly leaders of the Jewish people. These are people who are so obsessed with their ideas. And they, they didn't stop believing in Akadosh Baruch Hu. They believed in both. They incorporated some ideas from outside of Judaism into Judaism. When I want to give a shiur here about all the things Jewish people have incorporated from idol worship into Judaism, I didn't hear enough you know, how much people were upset at me. Not you, not, not the people here. You're, not, you're the reason I'm here. <laughs> Other people who heard. 
How dare you take away our... I know, I know. And Avodah Zarah is a hard thing. It's a hard habit to kick. Most of the time, the Jews who are following you don't even know they're following you. That's the hard part. And you try to tell them, hey, maybe just for one moment, think about what you're doing objectively. And then you begin to realize that their whole world relies on this Avodah Zarah. And you pull it away. It's like you pulled out the, sh- the rug from under their feet and their whole world crumbles. That's what the Rambam did. He felt there was so much that had contaminated Judaism that he came to purify it from all those things. Sometimes it's ironic to me how some of the people who are the most contaminated, they're the ones who claim to be teaching and following and studying the Rambam the most. They don't even realize the irony is rich. Maybe another sentence or two. And therefore, Barur, it's clear and obvious that every word, every sentence that came out from the Rambam's pen was holy to them. And they never in their life edited books just because that's what it felt like to them. What's Mizvara? Through logic. They read it, mm, it doesn't make sense, let's fix it. It must mean something else. Lo. <coughs> Hey, Gimel, Hachi Garcina. No, no, this is the correct reading. Velo Yesh Lahagia. They never wrote, oh, this is probably the way to correct it. Elim Ken Mofia Nosach Bikitve Yad Hatikim. Unless they found that text in the older versions of the Raman's writings. Vizod. Okay, already now we're going to get to another territory. Vizod Bikvot Haramba Milchot Malvevelove. This is in the laws of the Rambam about borrowers and lenders. Perik Tedvav in chapter Tet Vav. What's Tet? In Gematria? I'm not a Gematria guy, but this is Hebrew numbers. Nine. Vav? Six. Six. Nine plus six? Fifteen. Chapter 15 of the laws of borrowers and lenders. It says the Rambam, I already uh, investigated, inquired into the old texts. And I found in Egypt, it came to me, a, a text, a partial text of the Talmud. A partial text of the Talmud. Written on Gvilim. What are Gvilim? Gvilim. You know Gvilim? You heard of Gvilim? What do you have to write a Sevot Torah on? Parchment. Sevot Torah written on parchment is kosher? No. No. It's written on parchment. Minastam, according to the Rambam, it's kasher. It's not kasher. According to Maran, it is. It's a machogit. But Sifrei Torah didn't used to be written on parchment. Parchment is the thin part of the Sefer Torah. The Gvil is the thick leather part of the... Remember once there was Sefer Torah here in the neighborhood that, that was written on Gvil. Baruch remembers for sure. He once told us about it. K'mo shayu kodvim kodem lazman hazeh bekarov chamesh mochana. And I saw a text that was written on the Gvilim the way it used to be written almost 500 years old. You know, it's an interesting thing. I think uh, so much has been lost because certain texts prevailed over other ones. There's a famous Gemara that was discovered. Gemara, I think, in Masechet Avodazah from the Spanish Jewish period. And there are some slight differences between that Gemara and the Gemara printed in Vilna and used in all the Yeshiva today. And those slight differences have tremendous impact 
on the way halakha should or would have been codified. Also, over time, like one small ripple becomes a huge effect. Correct. Now, you're talking about malicious censorship. I'm talking about it just mistakes. Not even malicious. Sometimes it just happens. Like the olive thing, Sal, the Kazayat. Right. That's, that's already changing of things. This is different. So there's editing, there's censoring, there's mistakes, and then there's reassessing and coming to different conclusions. <coughs> Because of this, the Yemenite Jews had the copies of the manuscripts of the Rambam as they came out from under his hands. And they received the amendments to his books as they came out in real time. They had set people, this was their job, to go to the Rambam and get the newest update to the Mishneh Torah. Already tomorrow we're going to have to do this because this whole next piece is now going to compare between the handwritten manuscripts and the printed manuscripts. And I think from here I want to end off with a note. He mentioned that the Jews in Yemen didn't have, have the audacity to edit the books. There's a famous book. It's called the Sefer Habrit. Don't get confused. Not Shnei Luchot Habrit. That's also a Rabbi Horowitz but a different Rabbi Horowitz. Every time I quote this one someone else quotes the other one. It's not the same thing. Rabbi Pinchas Halevi Horowitz was a rabbi in Vilna. He wrote a book that has two parts. Peretz likes his book a lot. It was given to him as a gift from his father. When his father would travel between uh, different countries, his father brought him this gift as a gift to him, from Ashkenaz to Morocco. With Pinchas Halevi Horowitz of Vilna, it's an interesting thing. He was writing an introduction to the book of Rav Chaim Vital on uh, Ruach HaKodesh. Now, I'm not one to deal with matters of Ruach HaKodesh, but Rav Chaim Vital makes it apparent that in order to have Ruach HaKodesh, one has to not just be an expert in Torah, but also be an expert in all the sciences and the way the world works. Because how could you understand the secrets of a world if you don't understand the world in the first place? And therefore, Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz wrote a book called Sefer HaBrit HaShalem, the full book of the Brit, which is two parts. The first part, he spent many years of his life going to libraries and finding encyclopedias and mentors and to write about simple th- things that you might have learned already as a child, but an average Jew in Vilna might not know. How the sun rises and goes down, how thermometers work, how, uh, how, how mer- uh, mercury inside of thermometer, how different uh, chemicals interact with each other, how uh, animals, which kind of animals, which countries are in the world, geography, uh, math, uh, other other things. Some of the things are a little outdated based on you know discoveries since then. And the second half of the book are all kinds of introductions to Jewish philosophy, to Jewish uh, wisdom, to other interesting areas. You know, in there, in the second half of his book, Rav Pinchas Halevi Horowitz writes there a scathing rebuke on his own community, on the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which didn't allow for young people to become educated in the secular education, and he. If I would, maybe one day we'll learn that lesson. It's, it's, scathing is a nice word. It's essentially we've reduced the Jewish people into beggars, into schnorrers, if you want to borrow a word. I told a good joke. Somebody said, you know, a guy's walking down the street and uh, he tells him, hey, you have a cigarette? And he says, uh, sure, 
takes out a cigarette, gives it to the guy. The guy takes a cigarette and rips it up into little pieces and sprinkles it on the floor. So what's that for? I just gave you a cigarette. He's like, yeah, I quit smoking two months ago. It's like, so why did you ask for, ask for a cigarette? So I can't get to asking people for free cigarettes out of my system. And I still have to walk around again. <laughs> Sometimes there are people, they, that's what they do. They need a take from people. This is a, he writes there that Am Yisrael was promised to be the leader of the world. These people are supposed to be the most brilliant people on earth. He said, look at our status among the nations of the world. When you look at a person who studied in a yeshiva, it's the assumption even in the religious community, don't tell me not, I know how people speak even to Tamil Khamis. <clears throat> the assumption is he's an idiot. He's not such an intelligent person. The person of inferior intellect doesn't know much. Maybe knows a little bit of Gemara. But the real world doesn't know. When you meet a Tamil Chacham who also understands something about the world, today I had to ask a Tamil Chacham a halakha question. It had to do with details of law school. The Tamil Chacham that I called up knew every detail you would want to know. What the first semester of law school looks like, what kind of internships a person might need. You would think this person went to a university on his own. But how do you call yourself a Tamil Chacham? You don't know anything. A Tamil is not a title for a person who failed elementary school and high school and couldn't go to college and that's why they stayed in yeshiva. That's not a correct. And Pichas HaLevi Horowitz complains very harshly. How many great rabbis didn't educate their kids properly? They expected they would be Tamil Chamim. They didn't realize their kids were not cut out to be Tamil Chamim. How many people thought that they could be up and coming Tamil Chamim? They don't have money. When they don't have money, they have to go travel to other countries to, to go get a job over there in a different city, in a different place. They send their wife food in the mail, money in the mail. Their children are raised without any parents. It's all for what? So your children can be Torah scholars. So they're not Torah scholars, and they don't, they're not parents, and they're not husbands. So what did you accomplish? Special Tanikhachab. He writes in his book that you should promise me that when you read my book, and especially other rabbis' books, don't be from the editors. Don't go through my book with a pen and start editing things that look like mistakes. Examine something a hundred times before you decide to edit it. <clears throat> I said, how many mistakes do we have in Jewish books? Because someone was quick to edit, and really they should have edited themselves before they edited the book. The book was correct. Their Hebrew reading skills were inferior. The book was correct. They didn't understand the grammatical structure of the sentence. The book was correct, but the topic was not one they were familiar with. And they didn't realize that here, this word means what it doesn't mean over there. And because of that, now we have printing errors. 200 years later, some wonderful editor brags how he edited the whole manuscript. And we don't have the original anymore. And now there are mistakes. There's a book in Halakha. I won't mention its name. It's an old book in Halakha. That has so many printing errors inside of it. That one of the Tamadei Chamim said that it's forbidden to quote things from that book unless you find them quoted by other Tamadei Chamim in his generation. Because the printing we have in front of us is most definitely incorrect. So the editors who tried to improve ended up destroying a rabbi's legacy. His wisdom is now inaccessible because we don't know what's true and what's not. We don't want to be from those who edit. We want to be from those who listen. And if one is truly a follower of the Rambam, an admirer of the Rambam, like the Jews of Yemen were, they wouldn't be so quick to edit his writings unless they were certain that that was what was written earlier in the manuscript from the Rambam himself. And that's the beginning of a conversation on the accuracy and the credibility 
of the handwritten manuscripts from Yemen on which this Mishnah Torah is based on. We'll continue that tomorrow night.